stuff already. I can't hold it together. <laughs> oh, God. I was trying to be serious. That one's on you. Okay. <laughs> Matt, Matt won. No, no, wait. Taryn won. Matt zero. <laughs> okay. Oh, All right. All right. Going live in three, two, one. Hello and welcome to another episode of Talk About the Industry. I'm your host, Matt Miller, and I'm here with one of my favorite people in the entire universe, Taryn Kashuk-Russell. Now, here's a very professional bio for Taryn as follows. Taryn Kashuk-Russell was named the director of the 92nd Street Y Harkness Dance Center in September of 2019. Directly prior to holding this position, Kashuk-Russell served on the artistic leadership team of the Juilliard Dance Division for three years. As an associate director in the 2016-2017 and 2018-2019 academic years, and as the acting artistic director in 2017-2018, she programmed the main stage performances at the Peter J. Sharp Theater with four new creations during the fall and a triple bill in spring, which included Martha Graham's Rite of Spring and Bill T. Jones' D-Man in the Waters. Ms. Kashuk Russell is a passionate educator who has taught both at the Juilliard School and at the Conservatory of Dance at SUNY Purchase University in the five years since she moved back to New York. Between 2008 and 2013, Kashuk Russell directed Hubbard Street 2, where she met me. During her tenure as director of Hubbard Street 2, she was responsible for programming and staffing the HSDC summer intensives and curating HSDC's national choreographic competition. In this capacity, Kashuk Russell realized her passion for teaching and mentoring young and emerging artists. Hubbard Street 2 created its first full-length children's program, Harold and the Purple Crown, a dance adventure, under her directorship. Harold premiered at the Kennedy Center to a sold-out house in October of 2010. Taryn has done many, many, many other things besides this short paragraph, but those are some highlights, and here she is on the show. Welcome, Taryn. Thank you, Matt. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. I have wanted to have you on the podcast for a while, uh, not just because you're one of my favorite people and also a great guest, but also uh, just like a powerhouse, I think, in the in the dance industry. We're going to get into some great stuff today. I think it's really interesting to talk about your career as a dancer, but also you've had a really interesting career as, you know, I guess artistic leadership would be the way to describe it. You know, you've, you've done dance education, you've done artistic directorship, as we just talked about. And I think you have a really interesting and unique perspective on contemporary dance specifically, but just the dance industry as a whole and kind of where it's been and also where it's going. Thank you. Uh, also, Taryn and I are goofy friends and have been for years. So uh, get ready for a completely unprofessional interview. So well, uh, I was, I'm, I'm glad you said that because otherwise I was walking <laughs> off right now. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's just say that there were events in the past where Taryn had to talk me out of wearing a fedora. So I forgot about that one. <laughs> I didn't. There's photographic evidence. So uh, let's talk about uh, one thing that's unique to you, I think, but also but not necessarily unique to many of the dancers I know is like a really serious interest in dance at kind of a younger age. I would love to start with. Uh, you've done many things in your life. You've danced for the Joffrey Ballet. You've danced for Hubbard Street. I want to know kind of what the initial kernel of, you know, why you got interested in dance, specifically in the arts. Was there a family connection? You know, let's talk a little bit. Let's start there with early years of Taryn. Absolutely. Um, so I have a dancing family. 
Uh, I know that that sounds kind of funny to say it out <laughs> loud, but um, my entrance into uh, the dance industry, if you will, came from um, not only my older sister, uh, but also my older brother. So mm. the story goes that up the street, someone was taking dance classes and my sister wanted to join. So she talked to my mother into letting her join. My sister's five years older and my brother's mm. seven years older than me. Right. And they, at the same time, they needed boys to be in the program. And my brother was in uh, sports and thought it would be good for his sports. So they both mm. started roughly around the same time. And mm -hmm. so a uh, very young two-year-old, three-year-old Taryn, of course, was carted along to dance studio. Yeah. In hindsight, after being the mother of a young girl who mm -hmm. I am told is very much like me, um, <laughs> I, I was very destructive in the waiting room because of my energy. And I was told that I even climbed up the cubicles and threw things down. I, oh I don't God. know this imagery. I never, I don't remember it. I was told the story. Um, but uh, does that, it surprise you? No, no not now. Um, but that I was... Uh, obviously, the minute that I could actually get into dance classes, they they put me in there. Yeah. After that, not only was I at the studio for my own classes, that kind of you know hour long combination class of tumbling, tap, mm -hmm. ballet, you know, but I stayed for my brothers and sisters' classes, and I'm a natural mimic, as you might know, because <laughs> I, I, I use that. Um, yeah. And and so I would stand in the doorway and uh, mimic their movements and really early uh, by the time actually I was seven years old they had started allowing me to take double the amount of classes and oh, wow. so I was in a full week's worth of dance classes by the time I was seven so I was identified with having talent I think that that was one of those yeah. I definitely got a lot of uh, good girl you know good girl good, good. <laughs> you know Taryn will demonstrate Taryn will yeah. do it and, and yeah. I, I responded um, really well to that I mean at the same time I was still I was ex I loved soccer simultaneously. Sure. So I was doing yeah. both things and I would run from the soccer field back into dance. Um, yeah. And then skip forward a little bit to my middle school years. And why this is mm -hmm. important is because I had been identified with talent. I yeah. was immersed in a lot of very intense training by that time. Yeah. So when we found out uh, through first the screening in my middle school gym mm -hmm. class mm -hmm. and then going to, uh, my pediatrician and then eventually mm -hmm. specialist that I had adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. Yeah. Um, that was a big turning point. Yeah. Uh, learning that I had a severe spinal condition mm. um, and that it would have to be treated uh, until puberty or until I stopped growing. And that the degree that it was, was already so severe. We really had to, well, my parents mm -hmm. were so trusting and amazing that mm -hmm. they turned to me after the first specialist and asked me if I wanted to try to have a career in dance at age 11. Wow. And I made that decision at age 11. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then they, a long journey uh, in that next year to mm -hmm. three years, um, they supported that decision um, with Herculean feats of um, gathering information and making sure I was getting the care that enabled me to become a professional if I wanted to be. Wow. That's great. I, I you know, as someone that's worked with you and is also a friend, I see this uh, narrative repeat in your life. There's an obstacle, 
uh, it's uh, far larger than it should be. And you overcome that obstacle because you power through it somehow, you know. Uh, and that, it's a over, that's an oversimplification, but, you know, being 11 and realizing, yeah, many people think of scoliosis and they, and they think, oh, there's, you know, I'm seven degrees, nine degrees out of whack. Uh, you know, they don't think of a spine growing in an S shape. That's certainly a unique problem to have to overcome. It was definitely unique. And I think that you, you tapped on that, um, obstacle to, yeah. to, you know, that windmill to tilt at that, you know, I, there was a, a very fierce determination that not only was I going to go towards this goal, which I set for myself, but then after my parents entrusted their, um, their own insecurity, they didn't know if they were doing the right thing. And they were, they were, all of this effort went towards me going towards this goal. And so yeah, there was no way it wasn't going to happen. I was so determined that I was going to become a professional. That goal just, it never wavered. Yeah, that makes sense. And it tracks with your current personality today, I think. <laughs> well, you know, I'd like to think that I'm old enough that now I've started to unpeel the layers that I had <laughs> built up in order to make that happen. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. So, okay, so you're this uh, crazy energetic kid that's destroying offices. You find out you have scoliosis and you say, fuck that. And you end up as a professional ballet dancer, right? So then what's the next step? I mean, you ended up at the Joffrey, but were you at the academy or were you doing serious training somewhere else in Pennsylvania? Well, I am so old, Matt. <laughs> I am so old. How old are you? How old I, are you, Taryn? <laughs> I'm so old that the Joffrey Academy didn't exist when oh, I was young. Right. Um, yeah. So that actually happened after they moved to Chicago. Joffrey was in New York when I was young. Right. So I'll try to do the sped up version because there's a lot that happens yeah. after 11 before I become a professional. But as right. we don't necessarily want to get into my awkward, you know, <laughs> headgear, back machine, <laughs> all of the pimples on my face, oh my the God. boyfriends, like we really don't need to uh -huh. do that. So okay. All right. That's fine. <laughs> shelving that for a second. Um, my first, uh, my first summer programs and mm -hmm. the first real identification of a place that I saw myself in was Boston Ballet. Okay. And so for two summers, I spent mm -hmm. eight weeks, um, I think when I was 14 and 15 or 15 and 16, somewhere mm -hmm. in there. But I spent two months. I went to wow. uh, Boston and it was amazing. I Again, I look back, we were in a different time then, than we yeah. are now, but, but yeah. I had a lot of um, amazing training, but also freedom to explore yeah. the city. So it was the first time I was immersed in a city. We actually stayed in we were on Commonwealth Avenue. We stayed oh, wow. in these brownstones. Um, wow. it, it was like being in college. It was really, yeah. it, was, it was amazing in that way. Um, and then we had really intense classes. Yeah. And I was there and I fell in love with the company. So I wanted to go back. And so mm -hmm. when we got to, I guess it was my junior year in high school, I went to an audition for Boston Ballet 2. Oh, okay my resume and headshot were taken and mm -hmm. I was notified that I was being considered for Boston ballet too. Great. And could I graduate high school early? Because it was different <laughs> at that time. Yeah. They didn't have, you know, yeah. luckily, uh, in addition to the other things in my life, I had an, uh, individualized education. So I was identified as gifted when I was young, Yeah, which meant additional, I don't want to say advocacy for you. Yeah, but additional you, access. Yeah, exactly. So 
So we were able to reach out to the high school that I was at. And Mm -hmm. this all was happening in the winter. And I was going to graduate on paper. And then we get to May. And and how it was set up is I was going to graduate, was going to go back to the summer program because that's when Boston Ballet 2 starts. And then I was going to join the second company. And we got a, a phone call. I can't remember if it was in April. Or mm-hmm. May, but really late, like really like right before the end of school saying, actually, the position that we thought we had to offer you no longer exists. Ooh. Yeah. No. It was pretty intense. Mm. Uh, and I will say the the director at the time, Laura Young, mm-hmm. she was phenomenal. Um, she yeah. was extremely transparent now that I'm looking back as an educator and director myself. Sure. She gave the right information because it was enough to make an informed decision, which was essentially mm-hmm. <laughs> the, de- you know, the decision, how it all panned out was the director of the main company at the time. Yeah. Wasn't very interested in me. And she gotcha. actually in- she imparted that information. And as difficult as it was to absorb, mm-hmm. it was also really critical to know because she said, well, you can still come to the summer program and have a scholarship. But right. Why are you, you know, I graduated early why would I go to the summer program of a place that I don't have a future right yeah. there? Um, yeah. And then she also said very generously that, you know, she would recommend me for other positions that had come up in different regional companies around the United States. Great. Um, all of which were amazing, but I just wasn't in that headspace yet. Wasn't there. Yeah, sure. So I ended up moving to New York City. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> Williamsburg, Brooklyn, with my sister who <laughs> was graduating uh, from Yale. So she had just got, she was getting her undergraduate. Oh, yeah, right. And she had gotten an English degree and she was moving back to the city actually because she wanted to dance. Yeah. Amazingly. Like. Yeah. And so she, <laughs> and I moved in with her and her uh, friend, roommate Rebecca. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time as well, my older brother was living in New York, uh, in Brooklyn, a different area of Brooklyn. And yeah. he was uh, dancing with David Parsons' company. Yeah, right. So I moved into New York uh, without <laughs> a job and uh, ended up getting a scholarship at the Joffrey Ballet School. This is bizarre now. Okay. Because I got a scholarship at the Joffrey Ballet School the year that the company went bankrupt. Right. So I was moving in <laughs> as they declared bankruptcy, didn't uh-huh. know where they were going to go. Uh-huh. And then I was on scholarship at a school that didn't really have a company and didn't know its future. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that the s- sordid past of the Joffrey, shall we say, you know, at that time, it was unclear whether they even had a future. Absolutely. It was real. I mean, especially because being at the school, I was overhearing quite a number of conversations and they mm-hmm. were still, um, yeah, there were, there were, there were all different possibilities. They were looking yeah. at different areas they had toured. Maybe they would relocate to Los Angeles, right. maybe Washington, DC. Mm-hmm. When it finally came back around that, um, it was kind of regrouping into Chicago. Mm-hmm. What happened was that, uh, they asked a number, a few of us to come out mm-hmm. for the Nutcracker. Okay. Um, I'm skipping for brevity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we, so I got to ask to come out for Nutcracker and they had told mm-hmm. us very specifically that they didn't have contracts available. They only had a, you know, the company yeah. was um, smaller. However, after the Nutcracker season, they actually asked me specifically to stay on and I got a contract. Right. Um, so it was this bizarre <laughs> moment. Uh, and then really yeah. right then I jumped into what, 
they were in the midst of, which was billboards. So I started learning all the parts and billboards. And I will say that my entrance into the company couldn't have been better because I was young, Mm -hmm. energetic. I loved Mm -hmm. Prince and they happened to be at the point in that production where they were touring the world. Yeah. Yeah. So within the first two years, even though billboards was a lot of what we did, we did other repertoire, but I got to see the world. It was really a a really wonderful time to be touring. Yeah, absolutely. I I think a lot of people look at the Joffrey Ballet now, which is structured more like a a regional ballet company that, and they're doing a lot of storybook work. But back then it was much more of a contemporary company and, and geared more towards touring uh, certainly than their model is now. So you were uh, you were at the Joffrey for uh, until two thousand two. Okay, you did some guesting other places, but that was you know that that's a, became a pretty solid uh, company and probably you know a full time gig. Yeah, no, it absolutely was when I was when I was there. I think there was only one week or one year, maybe maybe two mm-hmm. out of seven years that were under forty weeks. Yeah. So we had a substantial contracts. We were we had some beautiful residencies. We would mm-hmm. go out to Telluride, Colorado for a month. Yeah. We, you know, we were regularly at the Amundsen or out in the Dorothy Chandler in Los mm-hmm. Angeles. We were yeah. at um, Kennedy Center a number of times. We had really be- Northrop in Minneapolis. So we really right. the touring was great. And then we also I was there while they were really putting down roots yeah. in um, Chicago. And you know, my home theater was. At, the auditorium. Yeah. I mean that you can't ask for more. The auditorium yeah. is just such a beautiful and special place. Yeah. There's so much history through there. Uh, not just Chicago acts, but acts from all over the country and all over the world. I imagine that where you were when you entered the Joffrey and where you were when you left the Joffrey were two very different people. And I've had a couple other uh, folks on the podcast, like Garrett Anderson, for one, who were really successful in ballet companies uh, and then made the trend, made a cognizant transition into contemporary work. Um, now you're at Joffrey at a time when it's more of a contemporary company though. Uh, what was your thought process when you ended up at Hubbard Street? Like, were you looking to leave or was it that you wanted to do more contemporary work or what was, or you just wanted to be part of a different style of company? It's a great question. Um, I'm going to segue back to my first years in Joffrey because apparently (laughs) I said many things that I don't remember saying to some of my older colleagues. Oh, really? Um, (laughs) One one of which was Uh uh, I probably within the first year I was there, Mm -hmm. I'm told, I don't recall this, that I had a conversation with one of the senior members at Joffrey. Mm -hmm. And we we, we weren't ranked. So we, one of the senior members, she'd been there for a long time where I, where I stated, well, I'm going to be here for a couple of years. I really, you know, I want to kind of move up the ranks, but then I'm definitely going into more modern company because that's what, and then I see myself and I was telling her all this (laughs) stuff. So later in my life, as I made these transitions, they all went, well, of course, because you said, I was like, when did I, what? (laughs) When did I I say that? Why did you tell me to sit the hell down and shut up? Like, just, God. Um, It's the dimples. Yeah. (laughs) During my time at Joffrey, the funny part is my transition out didn't necessarily have to do with knowing that I wanted to make that tra- that jump yet. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. I had gotten, this is going to sound funny, but I'd gotten to a space at the Joffrey, um, mm-hmm. a beautiful space where I was dancing Kate in Taming of the Shrew, you know, yeah. John Cranko's Taming of the Shrew. And yeah. I remember turning around and I was learning Sugar Plum. Yeah. So I was at a place that I was dancing 
principal roles. Um, mm. And I still felt very young. Yeah. I still felt that I should have uh, like a staircase to climb. Yeah. And not that I thought I didn't deserve to be where I was, sure. but I definitely didn't feel like I should be expecting everything that came in yeah. to be dancing that level. Yeah. So I looked for larger companies at first. I actually went into class at San Francisco Ballet. Mm. I started looking at Le Grand in oh, Canada. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then essentially what happened was my friend Cheryl Mann yeah. invited me. And, you know, I'd been in Chicago for such a long time. We all sure. had community. Yeah. Uh, she invited me to come see a performance that they were doing, mm -hmm. which had uh, a new work by Ohad in it. Uh -huh. And she was trying to explain this to me while <laughs> I was actually explaining to her this experience that I was happening with Yuriko learning mm. Appalachian Spring. So we were kind oh, okay. of crossing these very profound experiences that we were having. And yeah. so I invited her to come see Appalachian Spring. Yeah. Um, and she said, you need to see this program that we're doing minus 16. Yeah. You have to, you know, you have to come see this. Yeah. And on that same program was Petit Mort, which mm. I cried at when Hubbard Street had uh, access to because I desperately wanted, I had seen it in an, on the arts program at NDT. Yeah. Yuri Killian, for people that don't know, you know, very, very famous uh, choreographer who kind of put Netherlands Dance Theater on the map. Yeah. So he, so I went over and that particular performance, it, it just really solidified to me that that needed to be my next step. Um, yeah. Or I, I desperately wanted it to be. So I said, what am I doing? This is what I want to do. Yeah. And I went over and I, I took class and I auditioned and there weren't any contracts available at the time. Sure. Jim Vincent, who was the director then basically said to me, are, are you happy where you are? Can you go back? And I said, I am, I, I am, I can, mm -hmm. you know, I think I'm going to stay, but I don't know for how long. And yeah. pretty much after that conversation, I got back in the studio with Joffrey and I just knew I was like, yeah. this is my, this is my last year. I just, I know it is. Mm. Um, and it wasn't neither here nor there. It was just, I know I needed to move on. Yeah. So the following year when I think there was just some shifting with mm. how the male and female who had more so mm. that they, um, brought me in, they could bring me in. Um, yeah. but I should really state that I took a $10,000 pay cut to do that. Yeah. Because I wanted to do the work. Yeah. Um, and also, just truth told, I never got back that $10,000 in my time at Hubbard Street because it's, you know, it's yeah. going, it's the difference from going from a ballet company that yeah. has a larger budget to a contemporary company that really has not as much access to that capital. Yeah. You know, it's probably not well known for people that don't work in the dance industry. You know, ballet is a little, uh, just the audience is wider. You don't think that one, you know, that contemporary dance or modern dance is less financially valuable than ballet, but, you know, uh, even in nonprofits, sort of the rules of the market apply to a certain degree. Yeah. I mean, I, and starting to understand once I transitioned to leadership, mm -hmm. uh, really budgetary difference is, it's yeah. just, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. It dictates a lot, uh, maybe a lot more than we think. Um, so through some persistence and some curiosity and uh, some communication and a pay cut, you end up dancing the kind of work that you want to be dancing. Before we move past your time at Hubbard Street, I just, 
Uh, I'd love to have a little space here for you to talk about the kind of work that you were doing there, not just Ohad and Killian, but also, uh, you know, a dozen or so other choreographers at least, and being in a company with a very different vibe and a very different uh, uh, manner of working. Absolutely. There was a... um, (laughs) See, now I'm going to get emotional because... There is, there is an energy, and here it goes, in that mm-hmm. building, in yeah. that building that no longer is there yeah. at 1147 Jackson. And I know that the individuals who uh, were company members prior to that, because I remember mm-hmm. when they moved there, actually, you know, I know that there was always a special feeling, but really there was something embodied in that space yeah. um, that even when I was... I would go over there to take class prior. You felt it. You came in, you felt very welcomed. You, yeah. it was very, f- you were family and, yeah. and everybody felt like family. There was just a very unique, uh, willingness and curiosity and, uh, desire to grow, you know, that was very present during my time there. Yeah. I felt that in the, in the building as well. I think we all did. Yeah. Um, so when I came over, it was really, yeah, Killian and Ohad were big uh, draws for me. Mm-hmm. But also over the years, they had been doing a lot of nacho and I'd been mm-hmm. loving all of the performances and I got to work with him. I got yeah. to work with uh, Lar Lubovich. I had a yeah. wonderful uh, relationship of getting to do a, a few of his works. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and then also I, there was a large kind of, transition in the company a bunch of people left mm-hmm. at one at one time mm-hmm. and then a bunch of people came in and right at that uh transition we also brought in a piece called enemy in the figure yeah. which was uh forsyth work that i still to this day is up there with one of my very f- favorite pieces and in fact i saw it just i want to say a few years back with ballet bc dancing it at bam Oh, and wow. I and I had taught them. I had taught them class before, and then I was out in the audience, like jumping in my seat <laughs> while while the piece went on. And what's funny about that work, though, and now I think back to it, is mm-hmm. I don't think everybody in the audience feels that way. You yeah, know, I think yeah. the piece is actually not simple, and he mm-hmm. makes you work. He makes you yeah. work for, the, and especially as a lighting designer, you'll oh, understand. Yeah. You know, we yeah. moved the light, we shifted the space. The entire thing really is dependent on light. Yeah. And the the play between white and black, like that darkness and that space. And, yeah. and it was just that that was a lot, a lot of fun. That yeah. one that one sticks out. There, I mean, there's a lot that stick out, but yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, your natural curiosity and energy uh obviously um fit in at Hubbard Street quite a bit. It takes a lot of energy to do, you know, seven different styles of choreography. It feels like sometimes in the same show, <laughs> you know? Well, it's true. I mean, and also I, I should have, I mean, one of the uh, also huge highlights for me was mm-hmm. that I got to dance the lead in the forties. Yeah. So I got, you know, and that was such, I don't want to say a feather in my cap, but it, you know, yeah. I came from the ballet company and I was like, well, she came from the ballet company. I was like, I grew up doing jazz. Yeah. I grew up my whole life. My first class that I ever, I ever taught to other kids was jazz, you know, I mean, Broadway <laughs> style jazz. So yeah. when I got to dance the forties and work, well, Claire was the one, mm. Claire was the one that taught it. And yeah. of course she had danced that role many, many times. And, yeah. uh, and then Lou came in and worked with us too. Yeah. And I remember he was just, well, he gave me a hard time a number of times going, how come you didn't audition when I was the director? I would, you know, he would, yeah. he would just kind of, he, he was just such a wonderful um, energy to have in the space. And yeah. 
and the two of them together in the front of the room, it was, <laughs> it was a really, that was just a joy to yeah. dance too. So like you're saying, like very yeah. different styles, types of movement embodiment that you, you know, you got to, well, I mean, I did at Joffrey as well, but I think yeah. that, I think that, uh, like you're saying the, there's a different willingness. So as opposed mm -hmm. to this is part of my career, what role am I doing next? It was right. more, Oh, who's coming in? Who do we get to work with? You know, there was just a different yeah. hunger. Yeah. Yeah. Hunger is a great word for it. So, okay. You're part of your end in, uh, I guess, full-time performing, shall we say, had to do with uh, Donovan, right? Well, that was the thing. I wasn't getting pregnant. My body said, <laughs> no, I thought I was going to be like everybody else. I'd been married to Greg for a really long time. I was like, okay, we'll try. I'm going to yeah. do this. Well, I mean, I don't know what I was thinking because I was still touring. And <laughs> But, you know, after trying, I want to say for, you know, at least over a year, while mm -hmm. given the fact that I was touring. Yeah. I went to gym and I said, I, I, I can't, my body, like this just, it doesn't want to do this. This isn't, yeah. you know, so I feel like I need to step away. And he said mm -hmm. to me, he was like, well, I thought you'd just get pregnant and keep dancing. You know? And I said, <laughs> I did too, but it's not, it's just not happening. You know? Oh man. So I really quickly, because I was missing working on my intellect as yeah. I, you know, that was always a really large, um, that was hard. That was hard not going to college because there are yeah. elements of that that I desperately would have enjoyed right out of high school. Actually, yeah. I, I is there's certain parts of me that trying to feed them, making sure I was feeding those while right. I was dancing. You have to keep the balance with the mind and the body at both times. So yeah. I had over the years taken a few courses at Northwestern while I was doing things. Mm -hmm. um, but I really, I chose to try to do the continuing education mm -hmm. um, courses and actually enrolled at Northwestern and I was in at, right. at night. Mm -hmm. um, so I put myself in there and I started to chip away at uh, a bachelor's in psychology, yeah. which I got a, ultimately about a year, year and a half into, but okay. I, I was loving it. Um, mm -hmm. And right when I did that, Jim basically called me back within the first couple of months and said, uh, actually, can you help restage this? Can we bring you back in, yeah. you know, to do this? And I said, yeah, I can do that. And then the next one, Taryn, can we actually bring you back in to redo this? I hadn't even been out a couple of weeks. <laughs> and so yeah. by mid January, I had left in Dece December. Yeah. I was already back in the studio rehearsing yeah. them in January. I committed mm -hmm. to do something. Um, but what happened was three months after I'd given my notice or mm -hmm. created space, I actually got pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> so there. So then all of a sudden, I basically became a rehearsal director mm -hmm. while I was pregnant, while I was going to class full time at night. So then I yeah. started doing the... 9 a, you know, getting there for class at 10 a.m., mm -hmm. going. I used to leave at 5.45, running over to Northwestern, and then being in class from 6 until 9 every night. Yeah. And yeah. I did that Donovan's entire pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of my favorite photos of you is uh, uh, from the hospital you shared with us once, and you're trying to induce labor, and you're holding on to the handrails that are on the hospital so that elderly people don't fall and you're using it to do some bar movies. <laughs> yeah, at four o'clock in the morning at Prentice Hospital, of course. Yeah, yeah. Right after I birthed my son that next December, mm -hmm. um, we get to the following January, a month into my new motherhood, and yeah. I got pulled in again to Harvard Street and they said, would you be interested in becoming the director of the second company? Yeah. 
Uh, and that was a huge, huge moment for me. Um, yeah. and I'll, and I'll share the conversation because I didn't, I didn't know anyone who did that. I didn't have any archetypes in front of me. I didn't have any mm-hmm. other females that l- just had a child and took on a, a directorial position. I just didn't, I didn't yeah. know anybody and it wasn't something encouraged, yeah. you know, around me. Uh, so my, I remember my sister basically saying, just because you haven't seen somebody do it before doesn't mean you can't do it. Ah, oh, that's so great. <laughs> I completely will give her like credit for that till the day I die because I it, had she not said that exact mm-hmm. or very close to exact phrase to me, I don't think I would have ever done it. Yeah. I found that my love of directing and my mm-hmm. love of nurturing mm-hmm. individuals to their next place in their artistry really mm-hmm. coincides with me becoming a mother. The two things yeah. were basically evolving in tandem. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, I've always thought of you as a maternal person, but also I've never not known you as a mother. I think you have a really unique combination of both maturity and wisdom, but also energy that they don't always coincide. You know, there many people are energetic about other folks, but they don't have the maturity or the wisdom to approach sensitive conversations in the way that they need to be approached or to have an understanding of where that person is on their journey, right? And and how their place in their journey might dictate a difference in tone or a difference in conversation or what they can and can't process, you know, which is so important for young artists. Understanding how to communicate when you're speaking to different individuals has been one of my strong suits. And yeah. fr- frankly, I think a large reason for why and how I have progressed forward. Yeah. That may absolutely that makes sense to me. Uh, I, I've seen that in practice, not just with me and the dancers that you have, but with the you know production teams in different theaters, with leadership teams at the organizations you're at, with board members, you know, with guest donors on tour stops, with summer intensive kids. I mean, you know, with the <laughs> with the custodian that's letting you into the dressing room, right? <laughs> it's important. Uh, it's uh, important. And, not everyone's cognizant of it. Um, I think it's one of the reasons why we got along so well. I, when I first met you, I love to think back about this or to think back on this rather. When I first met you, you were wearing socks and uh, a velour track suit and a black shirt and you had to... <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh gosh, was it like the camel velour track suit? I bet it was. Like, I no, 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 it wasn't that bad. No, but I I was interviewing for the production coordinator job at Hubbard Street, and uh, I was in the office with you and Kristen Brogdon and Todd, and basically they were trying to fit in interviews around your schedule. So I got booked in an interview that was like in between class and the start of rehearsal, and you had just taught class. So you like, we're you know, I walked into the room and it's like there's Todd, whom I know and I've had on the podcast, and you know, uh, uh looking like regular Todd and then Kristen who looks like your typical professional office person. And then there's the potentially the woman I'm working for in a velour tracksuit, uh, with no shoes who, and like super comfortable, you know, and you were (laughs) so like straight and professional. And it was like, as if you were wearing a business suit yourself and I was wearing a suit and I immediately was like, I'm way overdressed for this interview. I was, going to, I was about to bring that up. If you didn't bring up the suit, I was going to. And like the skinny black tie, it was 
Oh, by the way, just so you know, I have uh-huh. socks on right now too. Yeah. So look. <laughs> the same thing. Oh man, that's so funny. I think back to that moment a lot because immediately I was like, oh, she would be great to work for. Uh, but the first impression was like, why is she wearing pajamas? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, it's a strange universe that you yeah. don't. Yeah, it is a different little universe to itself. Right. Well, and I had ne- I'd never been anywhere near a professional dance company, not really. Uh, so, you know, the fa- I had no concept of class or how many hours a day the dancers were working. You know, I was in a completely new environment as well. So we worked together pretty directly for certainly the first couple of years. I had such a good time with you and with the Hubbard Street 2 dancers, particularly that, you know, the first six So like, hold a really special place in my heart, you know, just as far as like my development as a professional and what we got to do, you know, and like the first tour where we went on was like some bizarre places. We like ended up doing shows at like, you know, weird, like Jim McAfeeatoriums and in like terrible theaters in rural Georgia with no rigging, you know, like all this sort of stuff. But the one of the things early on, and I'd love for you to talk about this a little bit, that kind of registered with me is how much you loved school shows. You know, we would do Hubbard Street 2, we'd do a stop at a venue, and we would load in the show. The, on the second day, we'd do a kid's show in the morning, typically for public school kids, where it was, you know, kind of a, a more like an hour-long show or a 45-minute show that was catered to teaching kids about dance and the art form of dance and what it takes to create it. And it was, there was a lot of audience participation. And then that evening we might do a full uh, public performance. So talk a little bit about that. Cause I know that this actually started with your time at the Joffrey, right? It did again in hindsight now, you know, mm-hmm. after many different scenarios of professional employment, yeah, it was, it was clear to everybody how much I love children's performances. Like I did, I just did. I, yeah. and, it, and I was a young mother. So it's not just because mm-hmm. I was a mom. I just, I like kids. I yeah. probably should have been on the Muppet show. I think that's exactly <laughs> where I would have fit in very well. I, I still, I just, I, I love childlike energy. I, yeah. I don't want to ever grow up ever. <laughs> so I think that when I was at Joffrey, again, trying to figure mm-hmm. out when we would do school shows, they would ask for volunteers or they would ask for different people to be involved. I always right. loved to be involved. I loved the energy that they would give off. Mm-hmm. I uh, took on uh, responsibilities, speaking in front about you know the history of point shoes or right, helping yeah. out with whatever if we were doing a, a, a machine work, a parade, the Diaghilev, and they'd break oh, across yeah. the horse. You know, I would, I would help to, <laughs> you know, to vocalize what was happening. I just really, I felt very invested in that. And also mm-hmm. um, during our early time in Chicago, the Joffrey Ballets, um, mm-hmm. they hadn't yet set up their, what became their outreach, then became community engagement, all of these different yeah. things that now are very integrated and very thoughtful, but right. in the very first, you know, years, it was, they were in their infancy. So they were essentially tasking dancers who didn't have training as educators. And these, these these straight, like these different branches I know very well can in a lot of cases be very uh, far apart. Yeah. Um, But somehow for me, I think actually over my entire career, I'm a hybrid of a lot of things. Yeah. As much as I am a performer and I think about this branch and I love this branch, mm-hmm. I'm also very much an educator. Yeah. And my 
beginning of being a director at Hubbard Street 2, I think, again, identified that clearly for me, is how much I care and value K through 12 education. Yeah. And and what the arts do with that age group and have the possibility of inspiring during that time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if I could go on a brief tangent here, uh, Laura Sweet and I talked about this a little bit, and I think it's important to bring up, you know, I'm the child of music educators and I had access to arts and education in my K through 12 life. You are the child of people that, allowed you to make choices to become an artist at a very young age, right? They valued not just your education, but also your access to the arts. And I think often people think of uh, valuing education and valuing the arts as two very separate things. But the truth is that they're not. They're completely in tandem. And valuing someone's intellectual development and emotional development, it's also, it's connected to their love of the arts, their love of music, and their access to different forms of expression. Absolutely. And I, again, now where I am with my children, especially I'll say reflecting on this last year during the pandemic is that was a really, you know, there were, my son is extremely um, musically inclined and making sure that that access remained uh, present. Uh, First of all, we Mm -hmm. have great organizations that we're connected to, but truly in this moment, educationally to keep them engaged the the availability to different forms of expression was beyond important. Yeah. I will say that as a parent, yeah. it made even clearer to me that in order to learn in any way, you have to have open the possibility of how people express themselves and give them those avenues to do that. Yeah, that's incredible. So uh, let's use this moment then to talk a little bit about one of our favorite projects, Harold and the Purple Crown. A dance adventure. <laughs> so I, I'd love for you to talk about like how you even came up with the idea. You know, at this point in your life, Donovan is a toddler, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. He had gotten the book Harold and the Purple Crown mm-hmm. uh, for a birthday. For whatever reason, my parents had vast libraries of children's books, but we didn't mm-hmm. have that. For what I don't know why we didn't have it, but we did not have. Harold and the Purple Crown. So as opposed to me revisiting it as an adult, like I did with a lot of his, you know, with what Maurice Sendak or Aesop's Fables or whatever, you know, just different things. Oh, my childhood. I didn't have a reference for this. Um, So while I was reading the book to him, the magic of it was so present. I just got, Mm -hmm. I, I got drawn in while I was reading to him, and at the same time, we were doing exactly what you're saying, these children's programs where we were right. trying to engage the children and their creativity mm-hmm. and their story, building stories with their bodies and their physicalities, empowering yeah. movement as a form of expression, just like we do with language, um, you know, and I made, the connection just seems so clear to me. All of a sudden, yeah. like there, there's this purple crown this child is drawing his world and right. in drawing it, there's this movement, there's this open canvas of everything and he is physically creating it, you know, as it's yeah. going along. And yes, he's, of course, he's artistically creating it. We got that with the crown, but the right. physicality of it just seems so in, in sync with what we were doing at the moment at Hubbard Street too. Yeah. So I'm going to tie that into... Mm-hmm. Dun, 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 the economic downturn oh, of 2007. <laughs> so, essentially, yeah. I'm in this moment, or 2007, 2008, um, mm-hmm. I'm in this moment in leadership. Mm-hmm. I've just risen to this place, and yeah. basically, right away, I'm thrown thrust into discussions of, well, 
the board's really considering completely dissolving Hubbard Street too. Yeah. You know, that was like the first conversation. Boom. Mm-hmm. My brain. Boom. Okay. It's a problem. We got to solve the problem. How do we solve the problem? You know, my <laughs> percolation, like all of the cylinders were firing mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and recognizing that there were a few things within the organization that we didn't have. Yeah. You know, we didn't have dedicated children's programming. We had been morphing things like lectems, creating these lectems to serve this. However, how much more could we do if we had dedicated children's programming? And then the other minds, you know, all the cylinders, Mm -hmm. if we did this, this is a completely different line of fundraising that we've never approached before. So fundraising, Mm -hmm. a service that we have not yet provided. Yeah. Amazingly, at that moment, we had Kristen Brogdon and Jason Palmquist, who had both mm-hmm. come from the Kennedy Center. Right. And Kristen was a sounding board for me, of course, because she managed all the financials and helped me with, you know, structuring the programmat- programmatic uh, information. And so she basically said, you know what, I have a really good friend at the Kennedy Center. Kim had been in charge of all of the acquisitions for uh, children's books. So I brought this idea. I said, this might be crazy. I never thought about how to do a children's book. And the very first step really after speaking to Mm -hmm. her was, well, let's talk about how we could get the children's book licensed. If it licensed, could it be possible? Um, And by this point, we're not, I'm not, now we finally transitioned into the internet. So I was actually like looking up, (laughs) is there other dance programs that have done this? And there, there were theater programs that had done it. There weren't any dance programs that I could see, and which I felt was bizarre because I thought it was so natural. Yeah. And I'll say that really the catalyst after that moment was having um, a number of conversations at the Kennedy Center where they basically said, mm-hmm. this is how we did this. Also, Hubbard Street is coming to us basically a year from now or however long right. it was. Yeah. If, if you do this, we will program it. Yeah. In that same weekend. And that really was the kick in the pants. That was, we could bring Hubbard Street 2 and Hubbard Street to the Kennedy Center. And Mm -hmm. so I think that gave, that lit the fire for the organizations where I got enough momentum to then, all right, well, then what do we need to fundraise? What's the budget going to be? How are we going to go about this? And then, and then all of those other decisions started to um, come in, one of which was I felt very strongly that it shouldn't be one narrator, one choreographer. Yeah. Um, well, she asked me right away, she was like, are you going to choreograph it? No. I <laughs> <laughs> so like, And not that I don't want to choreograph, but again, now in hindsight, I recognize mm-hmm. I am a, I'm a producer. I am yeah. someone, I'm a director, I'm a producer, I'm a facilitator. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I love choreographing, but that is not my primary or even secondary identity. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, th- then it became an opportunity. I can mm-hmm. offer opportunity to choreographers. And one of the reasons that I didn't want it to be a singular choreographer is that I felt mm-hmm. very tied to the fact that it had to be both a male and female voice. Okay. It, it was just a very strong, I'm a woman, yeah. you know, it was a yeah. very strong, this can't just be one vision. It, it yeah. has to be, it has to tie in so that again, going way back not even thinking about this, but it, it has mm-hmm. to make every child feel like they could be this child. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about access without specifically saying this needs to be accessible, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have those words then at that moment, you know, yeah. in time, whenever it was, it was, this is 11 years ago. So I didn't, yeah. or almost 12 years ago, I didn't have, I, I didn't have those vocabulary uh, present that access the, yeah. In, in, inclusivity. I really didn't. I mean, I thought about things, but I wasn't quite mm-hmm. there on my journey. 
Um, yeah. But I did know that I really wanted it to be uh, both a female and male voice. So bringing in Robin Mineco Williams and mm-hmm. Terry Marling. In fact, yeah. I should say that Terry and uh, his wife at the time, Lauren, were who mm-hmm. gifted Donovan the book. Oh, cool. So that was, again, I was like, hey, yeah. you know this book? <laughs> like, like that's like, I feel like, then there were a lot of things that went after that. I feel like I could go deep into it, including no, yeah. <laughs> bringing you in and all of the different beautiful, you know, from from starting a project to yeah. the reality of what the project, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. what could it yeah. be to what budget do we have and how can we actually right. do this? Right, yeah. Well, I thought that was a really great, I think, for me, like an, an interesting cumulative, cumulative effort or uh, representation of our working relationship to take a project from the inception of an idea to the reality on stage. Uh, you know, yeah, Ryan Weininger, the the scenic and video designer, I thought did really wonderful work. Uh, I got to light it. And yeah, it was it was also, it was I think it was a huge turning point, not just for Hubbard Street 2 and your career, but also for Ryan's career, for my career, and for Terry and Robin as well. Just for all of us, a really special project. Uh, and still to this day. Well, and and this is a really beautiful segue, actually, because in creating something for an organization and and you know me very well yep. in that I'm a hundred to a thousand percent into whatever organization I'm representing and and yep. embody you know like that's that's the work goes towards that I'm very in the service of yeah. versus it's about me and I don't think either one I'm not that's not not a judgment on I think mm-hmm. a lot of different people you know there's just different ways of um that you feel that you're drawn to. And I'm definitely a person that works in the service of, I think yeah. that's the easiest way of doing. Um, but in that, when I created and mm-hmm. I it, like the idea came up, it's like, I didn't even think this is a long winded way of saying like, my name's not actually associated with the production. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is yeah. so weird, but I mean, yeah. again, why would it be? Because I didn't choreograph it. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't light it. I didn't produce mm-hmm. the music, but I create, you know, so I don't even know. This is one of those things when you look back yeah. for the industry, like right. what, do, you know, I guess essentially I am a producer. I'm the d- producer yeah. director, but yeah. I, you know, I don't think of, I didn't think really about making sure I had those credits and mm-hmm. it wasn't, it's never, I just want it to continue. Yeah. Just, you know, thinking about, because I'm not a choreographer, because I don't think of things like that's my artistry, mm-hmm. but I do deeply care about my part in making it happen. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I, one of my favorite memories of that time period, uh, uh, is of doing the first run through in the studio and, uh, Donovan was there. So he, here's a little two and a half year old in the studio and, you know, and it's filled with audience participation and stomping and clapping and this and that, you know, and even this two and a half year old is like, now granted he's your two and a half year old. So different approach to, to dance in the arts, you know, the child of two dancers. Uh, but you know, he's jumping up and down and stomping and clapping and, you know, having the kind of experience that we all want him to have, you know, and then fast forward to the premiere at the Kennedy center when, uh, you know, the first moments of the revealing the stage and the kids are, oh, wow. Oh, my God. You know, it was just like, thank God. <laughs> you know, I think we were all everyone that wasn't you, I would say, had a little voice in our heads that was like, what if the kids don't react the way that they should? You know, and maybe you had that voice, too. But I remember sitting in the audience with my headset on thinking like, oh, man, what if they don't 
say anything, which is like so naive, <laughs> you know, and they, it was the exact opposite. They followed along with it through the whole hour. They participated when they needed to participate, you know, in the really touching moments, they were quiet and engaged and it, you know, it just did every, it hit all the notes we wanted it to hit. Yeah. It's weird to think about Donovan at two and a half now that he's taller than me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it just really has a, an unbelievably special place. Yeah. Um, great. So let's take this opportunity to make a uh, to continue on the journey of your career, shall we say. Um, so after doing Harold and fostering all of these incredible dancers through Hubbard Street 2 and taking us through the tumultuous time that was the 2008 recession and post-recession sort of recovery, all of a sudden we find out that you're moving to New York because your lovely husband, Greg, uh, also a former Joffrey dancer, got the company management gig at New York City Ballet offered to him. And uh, all of a sudden, you're in the building telling me that you're going to leave me. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of tears. That was dramatic. (laughs) That was a little dramatic. No, it was a big moment, though, because, uh, you know, we were such, uh, such a team, such allies for each other, not just uh, on all of these projects, but also in that organization. It was like excitement about Greg's opportunity, but also yeah. like a real sadness. And you guys had been in Chicago for 15 years at that point? 17 years. Oh, wow. An entire youth, like an entire... Yeah. Uh, we, we, grew, we grew up when we went to college. We left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a lot of chapters of my life. Yeah. And now, a message from our sponsors. Hi there. Are you a discerning podcast listener in need of professional voiceover assistance? Can you make use of a mellifluous baritone talent that has the warm, sexy presence of a dad bod and the gritty realism of a basket of sand? Maybe you're a flannel shirt salesman, developing bar soap that smells like gravy, or running a focus group for hats made of weasel fabric. Then you're in luck. Look no further than talk about the industry's very own Matt Miller. Matt has the amazing ability to sit in front of a microphone and read words on a page in exactly the order in which they're written. Practically any words at all. Using a patented combination of unholy acting talent and sheer financial desperation, Matt can deliver a professional-grade voiceover product to you for the low, low price of basically any amount of money. Holy cow! Recording a lecture on anti-disestablishmentarianism? No problem! Writing a book describing the medical functions of allomucilaginous polysaccharides? Sounds great! Or maybe you're knee-deep in multisyllabic terminology like pseudopod, philanderer, or dodecagon. Easy as pie. Or how about gesticulation, impignorate, or perfunctory? Amazing! Wow! Simply hop on over to the old computer desk and send an electronic mail to talkaboutheindustrypodcast at gmail.com with the subject heading, Attention Matt, Free Money. And you can be sure we'll respond to your request in record time. And if you'd like to hear more of Matt's smooth, smooth baritone, head on over to voplanet.com slash matt-miller for samples of his actual voiceover work. We're really not kidding. Or simply, you can continue listening to this episode of Talk About the Industry, the podcast, where we can virtually guarantee Matt won't be able to keep his mouth shut. Thanks again for listening. And now, back to the show.
Uh, so you, you end up in New York. Greg starts working for New York City Ballet. And then suddenly you're teaching at SUNY Purchase and at Juilliard. Uh, how did that work out? <laughs> well, interestingly enough, um, uh-huh. when I first found out that he got the position and then I mm-hmm. knew I was going to transition and leave there, he mm-hmm. had to, I mean, he left right away in January and Donovan and I started packing up the place and we didn't follow, of course, I didn't want to leave Hubbard Street too, you know, so I didn't leave till, I didn't leave till April. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. Also, you're pregnant. Well, wait, no, no, no. But I <laughs> oh. wasn't yet. So this oh, you is weren't? Like, no. So this is the amazing thing is that after Donovan, you know, we were just like, well, if we get pregnant again, we get pregnant. So we just mm-hmm. kind of like didn't. That was our thing. Yeah. And we didn't. We didn't get pregnant. And Donovan at this point was – so I told you all in December. He had just turned five. So Donovan yeah. had turned five. Mm-hmm. We hadn't gotten pregnant that whole time. We're packing up the house. I'm looking at everything. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to just – pack up these things I've kept the Donovan's and I'll take them to Salvation Army. You know, yeah, like, yeah. you know, this is kind of, it was a moment for us where like, I think that door's closed and that's great. Donovan's unbelievable. We love him so much. That's, this is our family, you know? Yeah. Oh, and, and, you know, in that mindset, I was like, well, uh-huh. Donovan's five. I was like, maybe I'll go back to guesting. Maybe I'll perform a little bit. I right, mean, you know, like, yeah. and my, and I was still just in that space. And I was still young enough that, you know, I was like, well, maybe I'll do this and maybe mm-hmm. I'll just switch it a little bit. And then, um, again, I gave my notice in December. <laughs> I left, <laughs> let's think about the similarities in my life. So I had <laughs> left performing Hubbard street in December with Donovan and uh-huh. got pregnant in March. Oh, I created space. I got pregnant. <laughs> I gave my notice for Hubbard street two mm-hmm. in December. Mm-hmm. We came out in March <laughs> <laughs> to look for places, Donovan and I flew out. I haven't uh-huh. seen Greg uh-huh. months. I get back. I'm packing up the house. I was like, I feel different. I was like, oh, okay, I'll get pregnancy tests and two bottles of wine because I'm packing <laughs> up the house by myself with my child. I'm emotional about leaving Hubbard Street, and there's uh-huh. no way I'm pregnant because I haven't gotten pregnant in five years. I take <laughs> the pregnancy test. And I was like, I did it. I didn't want to tell Donovan, you know, so he's watching a TV yeah, show. I'm like taking a bath. And as I saw it and I was like, I, like I <laughs> shocked. I was, what? How am I pregnant? This is unbelievable. And best part of the entire story is not only is Greg not anywhere near me, uh-huh. he was on tour in Copenhagen. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so I'm in Chicago. I messaged uh, him and I was like, uh, Greg, I think we need to... F- I, don't, I think it was Skype at the time, you know, yeah, it was before yeah. all of this zooming and right. I was like, we need to, we need to Skype. I need to see you. you know, Taryn, I'm, it's been a really long day. Like I don't, I just, I can't, can we just do it tomorrow? I was like, no, <laughs> I need to Skype. And I remember like, like we could see each other down the screen. like, mm-hmm. I picked the test up and I just held it out and he was just staring at it. Like, the two of me, he was like, what? Are we what? You know, it was totally <laughs> not expected. So, oh, you man. know, in all of these years of trying and thinking things, and then that was a complete shock. Audrey yeah. just she was like, nope, boom, getting in <laughs> under the radar. You're going to have me. Um, and oh, like her great. personality has remained that way since uh-huh. she, is, she is on her own time. Living, like we're all going to follow her. Um, so yes. So, so that did make a big change for me because I didn't seek out a full-time job right away. Cause I knew I was going to be moving four months pregnant Mm -hmm. and we had to get Donovan settled and all this stuff. So, uh, within that first year while I was pregnant, um, Mm -hmm. 
I had some conversations with different individuals. I came in a couple times. I think I taught for the Ailey company. I had started my yeah. teaching for them as a just company class, my relationship, my long relationship with them, which mm -hmm. um, they've, they've been like a beautiful family here. Yeah, um, they're wonderful. But then also, I think I set while I was very pregnant with Audrey, never mm -hmm. was for complexions for our. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, and right after I did that, uh, the director of Juilliard, Larry Rhodes, had mm -hmm. reached out to me. Mm -hmm. And I had had a previous relationship. He used to come out and teach while we were at Hubbard Street. Mm -hmm. So he invited me. He was like, can you possibly set this work for two of our seniors? And yeah. so I, after having Donovan, <laughs> made my way in to Juilliard to do that. And mm -hmm. I reconnected with another person yeah. at SUNY Purchase, who I'd known from my childhood, who was oh, teaching. Wow. And she said, I'm actually stepping into an interim position do you think you'd be interested in teaching my ballet classes? So all of a sudden, all of these yeah. things like popped up very quickly. So by the fall, so let's say nine months after I had her, I mm -hmm. uh, had scheduled myself to be basically adjuncting both at Juilliard and at Purchase and also yeah. continuing my relationship with uh, the Ailey Company and teaching. Yeah, wow. I think a lot of people know about the program at Juilliard, but not many people know that also SUNY Purchase has a really excellent dance program very different from Juilliard, but also like really killer. And a lot of their alumni end up uh, dancing in New York. Well, what's amazing um, about being at both places simultaneously is mm -hmm. that uh, some of the students at Juilliard would lovingly call themselves the Juilliard rejects. And I started <laughs> laughing. I was like, you're not. It's just so different. Again, I think having now been immersed in um, conservatory programs, yeah, you know, there are so many people that could succeed in Juilliard. There really yeah. are. And, but when you keep a very small and curated group of individuals, that is the special thing about getting accepted into a group is that you have all of that attention and that you yeah. really, you know, each class is roughly, you know, it's only a 25 person class. It's a really wow. intimate, you know, by the time, you know, the entire um, student body for the dance division is only yeah. right around 100. It's very yeah. curated. Uh, where at Purchase, it was almost double that. You know, yep. it depended. Theirs was a little bit more um, fluid in that mm -hmm. way, mm -hmm. but extremely comparable talent bases and yep. desires. And also, then this has to be said is again, I went into ballet, so you you were in your career at eighteen. But yep. the breadth of any academic program, people change so much between eighteen and twenty one. Oh yeah, they really evolve and. These individuals that, you know, were brought into a cohort at Juilliard mm -hmm. are completely different individuals by the time they're seniors. So, yeah. you know, and you can't say where that's going to go. It's same thing at purchase, same, you know, like there's just yeah. really, it's, um, I think that one of my biggest takeaways at working at different programs is you're going to end up where you're supposed to be, but please be somewhere that they want you and you feel invested in yeah. because the worst thing that you can do is put yourself in a place that you don't feel valued, that yeah. you feel like you're not being taken care of and existing in that space is never going to help you. You want to be somewhere mm. where you allow yourself to blossom. Yeah, that's great. That's a great way to put it. So uh, you you were felt like you wore a lot of hats at Juilliard in the artistic leadership uh, scene and, and kind of help them transition, uh, from Larry into now their current director. I, I've forgotten her name. Alicia Graf Mack. Alicia Graf Mack, whom, when it was announced, uh, I, 
sent you an email about it and you were like, I'm so excited about this person. So I think it's great. Um, how did you then uh, go from Juilliard to the Harkness Center? Like this is, I don't want to say a, a left turn. I mean, it, it's, but it's a big step up, uh, but also a step into a different realm in the industry. That's a great question. I think once I left Juilliard, I didn't mm-hmm. even, I couldn't even reflect on how much transition had happened in yeah. that, you know, very intense small amount of time from really be, being an adjunct teacher to taking on more classes to being a full-time faculty member, associate mm-hmm. director, assuming the acting artistic associate, you know, the acting artistic yeah. director, and then yeah. going back to our associate director and really helping to, to bring in, um, like you said, to really oversee that entire transition. Mm-hmm. There was a lot during that time um, that I learned. There was mm-hmm. a lot that I uh, grew. There were, there were, yep. there were just, there are so many different ways, uh, similarly to the beginnings of my leadership positions at Hubbard street, yeah. where I just didn't know my own capabilities, um, and just stepped into new situations. So I think there was, I, I was in a growth space, let's yeah. just say, um, at that moment. And, had, you know, over over the years since leaving Hubbard Street, I had gotten some different solicitations, people reaching out and saying, yeah. hey, would you be list- interested in applying for this? Or would you be interested in applying for this? And yeah. and also, I'd from different individuals that I know had gotten, you know, hey, Taryn, this position's out there. Do you know anyone you could recommend? Yeah. Um, and one of the people who was a consultant at the time happened to also be one of my uh, former colleagues and former executive director, Jason Palmquist. Uh-huh. Um, so he, uh, like he had many times, you know, mm-hmm. reaching out saying, you know, do you know anyone that would be interested in this? You're in the industry. Please let us know if you have a name to recommend. And, and yep. this one, he reached out and he said, Taryn, I really, I think you should look at this. I think you should yep. consider this. Um, and here's the job description. And, mm-hmm. and I remember my first conversation with him. And I said, Jason, I am, I am exhausted. <laughs> like, I just, I've, I've been the associate director. I was the acting artistic director. I'm the associate director. I was, there's a lot going on. I'm dealing mm-hmm. with a lot. I, I don't see myself transitioning to something uh, almost like you're saying that has larger implications as far as fundraising mm-hmm. kind of the, just politically where it sat in New York city, sure. the history of the organization. It was, it's just, a, yeah. there's, yeah, there's, there's largeness to it. Um, and then in some ways it's not, you know, so yeah. like anything. Um, but after he was like, let's just have a conversation with me. I just think that you should really yeah. look at this and I'm going to tell you why. Yeah. Uh, and what he hit upon is exactly every single thing that we've talked about in this podcast so far, which mm-hmm. was this particular job mm-hmm. encompasses dance and education. Mm-hmm. Um, professionals uh, in their trajectory, they have an artist in residence program. Yeah. They have this teacher training, this yeah. dance education laboratory that has been so, you know, it's there in their 25th year. They yeah. have this opportunity. They are, mm-hmm. you know, the 92nd Street Y is where Revelations premiered. It's oh. where Martha Graham was housed. Like you start going <laughs> into this. Yeah. And I started looking at all of it going, wow, like, I know why you're saying this. And I, and it really mm-hmm. does in many ways tie together these different pathways um, and interests that I have in yeah. the dance industry, you know, and, yeah. and cause it, it had all of them. It has, it, <laughs> I'll say it, it's even grown new ones. It just yeah. has, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, there, there was a lot. Um, and yeah. so 
you you know in my past that I had there were a couple other positions over the years that I mm-hmm. had put my hat in for that I made it you know down a certain pathway and they were really good experiences for me they yeah. they they made me understand what I was capable of they yeah. they put me in a different headspace so I, I thought at the very least this would do that yep um, and yeah. then uh, ultimately it shifted everything and mm-hmm. I ended up making a change. Uh, and that was, you know, I, I couldn't have told you that was going to happen six months prior. Yeah, so it, sure. it was definitely, again, I think all of my leadership positions, unlike all of my um, performing positions mm-hmm. were unexpected. All of the transitions yeah. that I've made, I couldn't have told you were coming at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting to think about that, you know, uh, such a different, uh, decision matrix that was in charge of your performing career versus your career in in education and artistic leadership. You know, artistic leadership is such a bizarre amalgamation of of so many different things. You know, uh, there's there are no artistic director classes. You know, <laughs> like you. <laughs> it's funny that you say that. I just had this conversation with someone else about developing. I mean, did I just like yeah. last week? I did, but go ahead. Please. Yeah. Well, I mean that that's the thing. You know, like. You look at somebody uh, like Glenn Edgerton, who was the artistic director for Hubbard Street while we were there, right? Uh, or while, while I was there, or Jim Vincent, his predecessor. Uh, if you look at the decisions that they make while in a leadership role, they're not based in like academic study. They're based in their experience with the industry, their experience with the organization and, and the artists that they're trying to serve and the audience. There are things that you can uh, study and improve upon, but you know uh, they're very. They're sort of like generically leadership things, you know, business communications or that sort of stuff. But the the core decisions that that last seven percent of the job that you have to do at the Harkness Dance Center f- in order to make high level decisions, you know, there's no there's no course of study for that. It's it's as much just like willingness and gut <laughs> um, gut feeling as anything. Well, and I think you just hit the nail on the head is that I, I feel in my career that when I've stepped into these positions mm-hmm. and, and now it's been a, a repetitive uh, theme, yeah. but I, I vividly remember the first time back to before I directed Hubbard Street 2, but even when I was mm-hmm. rehearsal director yeah. and Jim or Lucas would turn and say, Taryn, you're going to do this. You're taking it over, make this decision. And I remember right. kind of like, looking at isn't there uh, but the, isn't there somebody else yeah like, wh- why and then the moment directly after that recognizing i am capable of making this decision yeah i'm qualified to make this decision i am going to put the thought and dedication into it to make sure that it's successful but right i certainly and i don't i don't know if this is true for everyone i didn't mm-hmm. have a mentor i yeah. haven't had that um I don't want to say luxury. Luxury is not the right word, but I certainly didn't have, I didn't have that kind of a relationship. And which is odd because I do feel that I have become somewhat of a mentor to a number of people. I would never say that I would tell people, but I'm always there for advice. I'm always there to, you know, and I've definitely set that up for other individuals. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, um, you included, Mm -hmm. I have... Uh, gathered in my existence a number of people that I would use for counsel or that yeah. I really value their opinions, but most of them, if not all, with the exception of a tiny little handful over here, yeah. are, are younger than me. 
Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I do think it's interesting, but then I'm going to juxtapose that with being a woman leader. Mm-hmm. There have been very clearly different sets of expectations yeah. that preceded me by 20 years, preceded mm-hmm. me by 40 years, preceded me even by 10 years, mm-hmm. that I really feel that my timing has mm-hmm. happened almost in the center of a shift. Yeah. So I feel that I relate and I understand to the individuals that were in front of me by 10, mm-hmm. 20, 30, 40 years. I relate because yeah. I un- that's what I grew up understanding. Yeah. And yet the ones below me, th- they're experiencing very, very different entry and conversations mm-hmm. But where I fall is directly in between those two things. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, bridging the bridging the old world and the new world, so yes. to speak. Well, that comes back to the communication. Yeah. Because <laughs> I because yeah. I really feel that I still relate and understand to the individuals who didn't feel empowered mm. to make some of the decisions I am able to make. Yeah. And where I look below me in age to feel mm-hmm. that empowerment and to watch risk taking in a different manner. Yeah. And without judgment, because I kind of fell right in between. I don't have to feel that I defend my track record or mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. I got somewhere. Yeah. I'm really right. I, I straddle that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I um, uh, And it moves us uh, a little bit into uh, some topics I, I want to spend time talking with you about. I don't want to say it's it's become popular to talk about diversity or uh, or that kind of thing but uh, but I do think that it's become a more um, a more public discussion in the last few years my perspective as a straight white dude ha- I've seen you know in the last I would say five six seven years first a really serious conversation about how we treat the women that we work with and then uh, a really serious conversation about how we treat the people of color that we work with not just our Black and African-American collaborators, but also our Latinx and Asian-American collaborators, right? And I think some really great conversations have been had, but I'd love to hear how you are putting those kind of ideas into practice because as we were talking about with Harold and and in your position now at the Harkness Dance Center, you have a real ability to affect positive change uh, and empower sort of underserved voices. And right now, there's a really, I think, um, uh, a very specific push to to do that in kind of a tangible way. But what I've experienced in our professional relationship is that that's just always been a part of uh, your nature. What are your thoughts on that? How do you how are you approaching that at the Harkness Dance Center? Because uh, you've got some really interesting choreographic in- initiatives going, I think. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think that you you um, spoke very clearly to my heart, which is that I do feel that I have had um, from the get-go a mm-hmm. desire to be inclusive and yep. um, making sure different voices were heard. Mm-hmm. I will also then say that when I worked with you, mm-hmm. I mean, A, politically, the world was at a different place um, right, you know, sure. in 2009 to 2013. But yeah. it, uh, also, I 
personally um, in both my understanding of what inclusivity was mm-hmm. and how to thoughtfully address that. Um, that journey for me has um, really not been as present as it currently is until I moved to New York City. Oh, okay. It was always a thought, and I always mm-hmm. definitely cared when I was at Hubbard Street too about making sure that when we brought in choreographers that mm-hmm. they represented different um, experiences. Like that was a, that yeah. was very that was important to me. I, I've done a lot of evaluating as I think everybody has who yeah. started to uh, to look to look back at what you know they have known and what they haven't known. But I will say that once I moved to New York mm-hmm. um, and even to, down to where we decided to uh, live. When yeah. Greg and I, because we we lived in Andersonville, we lived in Chicago. Yeah. And I don't think I really recognized the um, segregation that existed within city blocks. Like I just didn't, I, yeah. I it didn't, it wasn't as present in my thought process and in my conversations. Yeah. Um, and then I'm going to turn and credit uh, becoming a college ed- educator because mm. where I had a uh, diversity in my friendships and mm-hmm. my professional relationships prior to um, taking on teaching at SUNY Purchase and Juilliard. Yeah. Even in those friendships, and I, I have beautifully long friendships, I wasn't part of in-depth conversations on race. Oh, okay. On yeah. specifically on race. I'll say some mm-hmm. gender. And yeah. I definitely I, there were a few individuals that, you know, we scratched the surface on some stuff, but there wasn't the kind of in-depth um, investigation, mm. um, and also I'll say vulnerability, access, and empowerment in in bringing me into a conversation that I, as a white cisgendered mm-hmm. uh, straight female, yeah. haven't had to deal with. You know, um, yeah, sure. And again, not that I ever could have described myself with any of the things that I just said right. back in Chicago. But right, so yeah. we get to when we moved back here in 2013, and. I actually have to say it was probably Michael Brown. Um, mm. And there's, there's a, st- we could go through the entire, there's not the entire, but there's so many different um, instances where mm. yet again, I was drawn to, wow, I need to know more. I need to pay attention. I need to see what's going on. I'm not understanding yeah. this. Um, yeah. But specifically, we ended up moving into a primarily and historic black neighborhood yeah, in, West- okay. in Westchester. And the only reason I started to, we've been in the same house since we moved here. The reason that mm-hmm. I actually learned that it was a historically black neighborhood is mm-hmm. I became really close to my next door neighbor who had been here for 30 plus years. And actually since then has moved out of the house next door. And he, but I'm still, he's, uh, Aaron is going to be part of my family forever. Oh, um, but he, he gave me a lot of the kind of insight on the history of this area. Yeah. Um, and, but then just starting to, begin my own education of Mm. re-education, which is a lot of my students, uh, specifically at SUNY Purchase, um, started Mm. to have very open conversations while a lot of the incidences of police brutality were happening. And they were were inviting me in to Mm. conversations where I hadn't yet been invited. Yeah. And, and, and I'll say it definitely was an invitation and it was a privilege and it is something that I still to this day, I've actually tried to reach out to a number of them that I recognize as being very formative for me to just mm-hmm. say th- thank you. Yeah. I, you, you really 
included me. You made me turn around and research. You made me start to read. You need me like all of this journey that a lot of individuals actually over this last year have entered into now. I I started in 2013. So my, for lack of a better term, wokeness happened happened then. Um, Mm. My journey began then. So in that process, uh, I started re-examining language. I started looking at uh, assessment in all on all sides of mm-hmm. dance, of mm. all of these different structures that I had existed in and thrived and that yeah. I had moved forward in and how had those things happened and how had I been like, how can I relate to this? How mm-hmm. can I not relate to this? And, and even just recognizing what otherness is. Yeah. Um, and that one became personal when I started to reflect back on my scoliosis and I actually went, wow, I have a point of relatability that Mm. I can reference where, you know, every, okay. Everyone else looks like they have a straight spine. I don't, I am the exception to, I am the, I am the thing that shouldn't be, you know? So Mm. again, just really starting to explore um, the feeling, that empathy for anyone yeah. who experiences otherness and is told they are not what the ideal is. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. I love that you're talking about it in that way because if you say to un- if you say to another straight white person, put yourself in their shoes. Okay, well, I, I I don't have context for that because this person might be black or Asian American or transgender. Uh, you know, how do I how do I do that? But thinking about it just in terms of the almost social isolation or the you know there this is a thing that only you have, and it makes people look at you in an odd way. How does that feel? It gets down to a very simple um, thought experiment, shall we say? And I think, again, like you're saying, in, in all of our journeys, then you start to recognize the complexity. Yeah. All of the different, you know, just going down to, you know, coping mechanisms. You know, right. People that make fun of themselves before anyone else makes fun of them. Mm-hmm, or, yeah. you know, you choose to do this or you you make all of these decisions to to then make other other people that you're around feel more comfortable. Yeah. Wow. How must they have felt? How must they have, you know, and really trying to... To go backwards, I've I've also done retroactively um, just some reaching out to individuals that I realized, mm-hmm. recognizing, hey, right now where I am, I understand that you probably were feeling a lot of things that I wasn't able to address for you mm-hmm. in that yeah. moment, and, and and I and I'm sorry that I I wasn't that I wasn't there, and and I yeah. see that now again in being so graciously awarded the vulnerability of my students that brought me into these conversations, yeah. it really comes down to feeling seen yeah. and, and valued. And, yeah. and, and that, again, that circles back around to you should put yourself in places right. where you feel seen and valued because yeah. that's where you're going to thrive. Yeah. And, and for those of us in leadership, you have to create places where people feel seen and yeah. valued. You have to value them. You have to see them. And that is not something entering into the profession of being a ballet dancer that was encouraged in me. Mm, interesting. You're only seen when you do well, what's right. And again, I'm not, this is, I just feel like the ballet world is at 
they need to unpack all of these things. Yeah, they really they're on that they're on the trajectory that they can, but there's there's really a lot. And if you can come back and strip away to how you treat humans, yeah, then we can have the conversation. And again, then putting myself between that divide without defensiveness of feeling like, well, but this was 40 years of my life. This is how I've always been. It was, we are experiencing language, conversations, meeting each other in a very different place. And so much of it is polarized. And so Mm -hmm. much of it is pitting us against each other. And if you can look at someone in the eyes and see them, then Mm. you can't dismiss them and you can't just walk away and not treat like you know treat them like they're human. Yeah, I love that. Um, we're uh, starting to run short on time. I want to get to a few things before we wrap up. We we have <laughs> <laughs> we've mentioned more than a few times uh, that you're a mother and a wife. Uh, I'd love to touch a little bit on work-life balance and how you uh, <laughs> achieve that <laughs> as you laugh sardonically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd also love to know what's going on at the Harkness Dance Center uh, right now and how you're, you know, uh, how you're programming uh, in in the era of COVID. I know you've got some uh, some new choreographic opportunities coming up that you'd love to talk about. So why don't we start with work-life balance? Amazing. Well. Work-life balance has never been more bizarre than it is right now. I have been in this house for a year with my kids and my job and I like, but um, what I, what I will say uh, going backwards before this year is that echoing the fact that just because you haven't seen something exist doesn't mean it can't be possible. Yeah. Uh, And also echoing I am great because of who I am, not in spite of who I am. Yeah. That one took a while. That Mm. one was definitely, I am not a great director in spite of having children and being a mother. Mm. I am a great director because of having children and being a mother. So therefore, the priority needs to remain in balance. Great. And I think that my largest piece of advice that I always say to anyone who's starting out having a family and wanting to not deprioritize their career to do so, mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah. having them both is I, I see it very much like a scale. And mm-hmm. and and sometimes scales don't stay balanced. They just don't. You yeah. know, so it does, you know, one side moves up and the other side moves down. And so you have to rebalance it and get mm-hmm. it back to the right place. And sometimes to rebalance it, you actually have to prioritize the opposite to give that more time because it's lost it and then it settles back into where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really uh it's a it's a living, breathing, symbiotic partnership is like it's and it's so naive to think (laughs) that it will exist if you don't work for it like anything like you you have to work for it you have to work at it it won't be easy i'm not saying that to anyone yeah it's easy you can be a mom and a director and do this i'm like no 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 it is not easy but it's worth it it is completely worth it it sounds exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also know how much energy I have. So I yeah. think that that definitely, you know, has yeah. a part of it. I will say something that I'm not the best at doing, but is extremely important is you have to remember that when you're beyond, beyond your capacities and all realms, that no mm-hmm. one will be better for you over being in overdrive. Your family won't be better for it. Your workplace yeah. won't be better for it. You're not going to do anything 
well if you are depleted of all resources because you're overexhausted. I love that you brought that up because that's that's a lesson that I have uh, only recently learned in my career. No one's going to advocate for you more than you, but also no one's going to recognize uh, that you need to create space for yourself in order to recharge and rest and re-energize uh, unless you do it. Well, I think you're absolutely hit the nail on the head. And then, mm-hmm. but then I'm also going to add that my children and especially as like, you know, it's a finite amount of time. I'm going to blink after we talked about my son being two and a half, I'm yeah. going to blink and he will be on his own. I've got five years left, maybe, f- you know, five years and then he's gone. That's nothing. Five years is nothing, you know? Yeah. And, and so really recognizing that the time that you are raising a family, although it might feel like it's a, a marathon is mm-hmm. really Hopefully, if you have a nice long life, it's a really small chunk. Yeah. It's just not that large. Yeah. Um, and and to be able to enjoy that and recognize that my children are my they're so often my sources of inspiration yeah. and creativity yeah. and joy, 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 mm. laughter, enormous amounts of laughter. <laughs> um, yeah. and I mean, again, I don't ever want to lose being a like I want to be a big kid until yeah. I'm no longer here. So, <laughs> yeah, that's it. I love that. I love that. I, I it's. I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about it because you know it's so clear to me that your children have created positivity in your in your life that has spilled over into your career and into the people that you work with. And I think you're right. I think a lot of people uh, that have families or children uh, maybe don't think about it in that way. They you know they try to compartmentalize and sort of I'll keep my my family over here or my personal life over here. I'll keep my work life over here and never the two shall meet. And for people that do what we do in particular in the more sort of creative endeavors, there's that line of demarcation is not a line. It's kind of a nebulous gray area. (laughs) So uh, having the two affect each other positively, I think uh, uh, makes probably makes it easier. seems to for me and it sounds like it does for you too. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what's going on at the Harkness Dance Center now, uh, uh, how you're dealing with COVID and what you've got coming up. Uh, I think it's some really great stuff. Awesome. So like everyone else, you know, everything shifted and moved in such an unpredictable manner uh, a year ago. And, uh, the organization that I work for 92nd street, why really, um, like there were no pauses. They mm. they very very quickly initiated essentially like a creative dump. They kind of went, mm. all right, we're here. Like I think earlier than anyone else because I think again everyone was going, well maybe it's going to be a couple months. And right, but they just they went start to create stuff, figure out what you can do, put stuff online, bring up stuff I did like, and it was really in some ways, uh, relentless, like there was definitely like, come up with stuff, come up with ideas. Yeah. And all of us were shell shocked. I mean, at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, certainly through energy mm. at, you know, at a void, you know, yeah. like this word is void. And they were like, throw energy, throw energy. And, and, yeah. and my colleagues, everyone else started to think about stuff, putting stuff up. And, and we, yeah. there was a lot of kind of, um, you know, putting things on the chalkboard and like, all right, well, let's try it. Let's try yeah. this. Let's try this. And, um, and some, experiments birthed some beautiful fruit and in yeah. flowers and and there were some really great things uh that took place uh mm-hmm. i was connected again 
internationally with uh, individuals that I hadn't been. And we had these yeah. beautiful global connectivity moments and opportunities to, to produce and to show work that could never have happened except for this moment, which I yeah. thought, you know, to bring back one of our, our lovely colleagues to bring Ms. Alice mm -hmm. Clark yeah. back into my existence and have her and Florian um, create really a global superstar like <laughs> cast of, you know, this, uh, project that they did for us in the fall was mm. so inspiring. Um, yeah. And other individuals that I leaned into, I had wanted to have in our space uh, when we were going to be live and then weren't able mm -hmm. to do that. And mm. I leaned in with them and was like, well, what can we do virtually? And flipped right. it around, um, started to reconfigure because there were different pay structures that existed. And I was like, they, people actually need money to do this. So yeah. really felt happy uh, that we yeah. had access to grant money so mm. that I could make sure these artists were getting compensated. And then it wasn't just for visibility and, yeah. you know, so, so really feel proud of a lot of that, that, were, that took place. Yeah. But then let's say we get to December and trying to figure out, you know, looking at the landscape still of being essentially sheltered, all of us, and yeah. what can we do that is going to make a difference? Like what, what is possible in this space virtually that can move a needle this way? Yeah. And I, I think all of the commissions that are happening, all of the filmmaking, all of these are really important and beautiful and people are innovating. However, I, I definitely felt I wanted to contribute in a different manner. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went back to my own history and leaned into remembering how many different choreographers I met in the young stages of their existence from the National Choreographic Competition at yeah. Abbey Street 2. Yeah. And really thinking back to the enormous expanse and where all of these people's careers have gone, mm -hmm. ones that I'm still very connected to. And I thought, how many people are at that moment and they're just on pause? Yeah. They're just... They can't be seen. They're not getting moved. And in this uh, beautiful, chaotic cacophony of online <laughs> presentation, you know, there's something happening all the time. You yeah. know? So, so again, in the most wonderful ways, of course, these very prominent superstars yeah. are there. You know, this person's over here at City Center, and they're over here at the Joyce, and they're over, you know. So, of course, <laughs> they've got this beautiful top billing. That's, you know, like you're seeing these things. And I was like, mm -hmm. how can I get people who haven't been seen to places where it's going to make a difference that they are seen? Yeah. So I put out a call for emerging choreographers and created uh, our first inaugural, the future, we're calling the Future Dance Festival. Oh, cool. um, with the idea, again, of Re leaning into emerging choreographers with the definition for the festival of you can have one professional commission. So these choreographers could have been commissioned by, you know, any major company, but only once. Yeah. Also, I didn't, you know, anyone who has self-produced and or has done things for schools, like mm -hmm. not university schools. I, I wasn't counting that because I feel again, it's different yeah. than you know, just levels of um, visibility that you've been able to have. And then what I did was I called on a truly amazing uh, group of individuals that are all directing companies and are prominent in the field and reached yeah. out and said, um, I know you care and are invested in the next generation of creators. Uh, you, mm. I've already seen this in your companies and either you're already commissioning work from young yeah. creators or you're actually 
encouraging the creators that are in your company to do work um, Mm -hmm. and would Mm -hmm. you like to be part of this? And so amazingly, they all jumped on board. So I have Janet Elber of the Martha Graham Dance Company. Yeah. uh, Eduardo Valaro from Ballet Hispanico. Mm. Jessica Tong, our friend who's the associate director from Hubbard Street Dance Chicago. Yeah. And then I have uh, Kyle Abraham from uh, AIM. And I have Victor Chiata from Rubber Band. Yes. I know. And they all uh, agreed to do this. And then, amazingly, as I was having a conversation with uh, the editor-in-chief of Dance Magazine, Jennifer Stahl, we were – and I said, you know, on a whim, you know, would you be interested thinking again, just levels of visibility and how can Mm -hmm. we connect the dots? And she goes, I would love to. I would absolutely love to. So that's great. uh, yeah, uh, and so we're we had 185 submissions. It was amazing. <laughs> it was I was not expecting it. Wow. Um, and the idea was they had to submit a six minute work, uh, and it didn't. I didn't stipulate. I said it could be in a studio. It could be site specific. You know, yeah. and and it didn't have to be done now. In fact, it could have been done. You know, just submit this. Um, yeah. But this is what will be presented. So just so yeah. you know that we're not refilming it like we're you know there's so many unknowns this is what's shown mm. but it'll be shown with um if you're selected the mm. director or editor will do a little introduction and talk about what inspired them you know and so we have now uh, i'm in the process of formulating three different weekends but there are 21 chosen finalists that are wow. now going to be shown on our yeah our virtual stage and i'm unbelievably excited i'm also going to say that it was really hard to even get down to 21. Yeah. We had a group of 30 that were shown to all. So 30 had access to every single one of those directors, which I think is already amazing. Yeah. But truth be told, I would have loved 50. But yeah. I could like it was, it was too heavy. I mean, there was so much talent. Uh, and I really feel uh, passionate about just even encouraging all of those creators to, to, to keep up what they're doing. That's great. Uh, it's really great. And it mirrors a lot of what I heard you and Terry talking about when you were digging through piles of tapes for submissions to Hubbard Street 2's National Choreographic Competition. You know, just like excitement about the next generation of choreographic talent, excitement about the possibilities that these choreographers uh, had for the dancers of Hubbard Street 2 and the organization of Hubbard Street. So I'm not surprised at all and really happy that you're uh, speaking about this program with the same energy and enthusiasm. And it sounds like coming to the same results where it's like, yeah, we have 21 people. We could have had 121. Well, I mean, I also think that something really beautiful that's coming out of this is these uh, different directors, after the, all the conversations and the viewing that we saw, we've mm-hmm. started like deeper conversations, which is essentially this is not going to be a one and done thing, at least for us. Yeah. We want to continue to help to create new ecosystems of support and networking mm. and to specifically encourage, um, of course, all of the next generation of choreographers, but specifically yeah. choreographers of color that maybe haven't had the same kind of ecosystem and access and, you know, just making sure again, that the diverse narratives and mm. points of view and embodiment and stories yeah. are, you know, coming forward. And that takes, everybody to do together. You can't, you know, like it's not just one person. So I'm really excited that they're on board for that too. That's wonderful. That's really wonderful. Uh, I've had so much fun and uh, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but we should probably wrap this up. (laughs) 
thank you so much for coming on, Taryn. Um, before I let you go, uh, I'd love for you to just tell our audience where they can find you if they want to learn more about uh, not just you, but the incredible work you're doing. Yeah, wonderful. I am not the best person at plugging, but uh, you, can, <laughs> you, can, you can find me uh, on the 92nd Street Y. But also, if you're fascinated about the Future Dance Festival, which is coming up this month, you can actually even just Google Future Dance Festival and it's going to pop up uh, for 92nd Street Y. Um, I do have my own website, which uh, I believe the 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 cover photo was lit by Matt. Yeah. So I can go ahead and plug that right there because <laughs> um, it was choreographed by the wonderful Nicholas Corcos. Uh, oh, and it Nick, was lit yeah. by Matt Miller. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, you could Google my name and I do have a website. I don't know why you'd want to go see it, but if you do, <laughs> I'm there. Um, and that would have also... <laughs> also other social media information about myself. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, uh, it's lovely to catch up. It's lovely to interview you and uh, tell the world uh, how great you are and uh, uh, let you share your story with them. Uh, I'm uh, really excited about this future dance festival and about the work you're doing at the Harkness Dance Center. Uh, I'm sure that you will have continued success in your career and personal life. And uh, please give hugs to your children and husband for me. I will. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Matt. Of course. Thank you, Taryn. Cheers. This has been another episode of Talk About the Industry. I'm your host, Matt Miller, and I'd like to thank you for listening. If you liked this podcast, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to share them with me directly at talkabouttheindustrypodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to find out more about Taryn and her work, you can find it at taryncashickrussell.com or on the website for the 92nd Street Y. The Future Dance Festival runs digitally now through April 25th, 2021. Please check it out at 92y.org dance. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of Talk About the Industry.